Why don't you go ahead and turn to um, Mark chapter 4 with me this morning. Mark chapter 4. Last week we had started a... Um, I've kind of mentioned on a few occasions now the way that the gospel is actually arranged by Mark as he has his overall structure to it, if you will, where he begins in, the, in verse 1 with his... Um, purpose statement, which is to reveal Jesus Christ as both Messiah and the Son of God. He then arranges his material in a way that tries to reveal those two to us. And as part of that, he takes and he groups certain events and puts them together. And they're not always necessarily um, chronological and not always necessarily in the same exact order you might find them in real life, if I could say it that way. Uh, Most of them are for the most part, but he has a tendency to grab events based on themes because he's trying to reveal something to us. And so he may, he may grab a few um, events to reveal the kingdom of God to us. Well, in this section today, or in our section we started last week, chapter 4, verse 35, to now chapter 5, verse 43, he had done the same thing. It's a, it's a section, if you will, a small section of his gospel. And he took and grouped three specific events for us, put them together because they share a common theme. And that common theme is ultimately used to present Jesus Christ to us with, I'm going to say, um, perfect proof that he is Son of God. And it's because Mark kind of has a tendency sometimes to focus on the Messiahship, sometimes to focus on the Son of God. We even talked about how the climax, one of the climaxes in the book is when Peter gives his confession in chapter 8, halfway through the book, that Jesus is the Messiah. And then the other climax, which is near the end of the book, which is the Roman soldier's confession that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we find that throughout this book, and so he kind of goes back and forth to some degree. And so last week and this week, he's focusing primarily on showing us that Jesus is the Son of God. And he does that through three events. The first event was when Jesus demonstrated his authority over nature. You remember that from chapter 4, verse 35. Jesus and his disciples were heading out across the Sea of Galilee when a massive storm crept up on the sea. And uh, it's pretty overwhelming. We talked about how the Sea of Galilee can be quite dangerous at night when the storms come in because of the way that the mountains surround it and the way the wind kind of rushes down. Their storms can come, uh, come upon it suddenly. So we have these fishermen that are in this boat trying to make their way across the sea and everything is in an uproar and they're fearing for their lives because water's coming over the sides and about ready to sink the boat. And where do we find Jesus? Anybody remember? Yeah, he's sleeping. And so they're a little bit upset by that. They try to wake him up in a panic, accusing him of not being concerned for their safety. So Jesus poses a rhetorical question to them regarding why they still don't have faith after all that they've seen. And we see that he calms the sea with his voice, simply speaks to it, completely shuts it down. And the response that we find with the disciples is fear and bewilderment. They were wondering what kind of a man, and that's a key statement, what kind of a man can control Nature. Well, the obvious answer to that is man can't. So who must Jesus be? He must obviously be God, the Son of God, if he's able to control nature. The second event that we saw was Jesus' authority, his power and authority over demons. We found that in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. When Jesus and his disciples arrive on the other side of a lake, Mark presents us with a man who approaches Jesus. He's possessed by demons. The other Gospels presented as multiple men. I think there's two of them at least. 
that they are possessed by not just a demon, but multiple demons. And the demons confront Jesus, try to gain the upper hand over him. Remember, they refer to Jesus specifically by his first name and by his title, which was an exercise of authority. They were trying to exercise their authority over Jesus, but he wasn't having any of it. And ultimately, we know that Jesus cast them out of the two men. They run off and they jump at a bunch of pigs, and the pigs go over the cliff. And we remember that as we looked at that, we struggled with the question a little bit, why would Jesus allow that? Why would he cast them out and allow them to go into the pigs? And it's because Jesus came simply to bind the strong man. It wasn't their time yet. Remember these demons in the other gospel accounts that asked Jesus, have you come to torment us before our time? Knowing that there's a time that's going to come, the book of Revelation spells it out, where Satan and his demons are locked up in the abyss before God ultimately destroys them at the end of that time. And so Jesus had come not to completely get rid of them, not to completely put them into the abyss, but rather to simply bind the strong man so that he could plunder his house. But again, that episode shows us that Jesus had and has power and authority over the spiritual realm as well, over demons. Again, to demonstrate his authority in a way that shows that he's the Son of God. In fact, um, I can't remember the exact citation, but there's another instance where some men go out and try to cast out demons, and the demons overpower them and beat them up. <laughs> gives you a good idea of what the demons can do. The fact that Jesus was able to exercise authority over demons in every instance where he comes upon them indicates that he is, again, the Son of God. And so we have Mark's second example of that. Well, he has a third one today that demonstrates Jesus' authority over death and disease. So we, sh- we have him being revealed as the Son of God because he has power and authority over nature, over demons, and now over death and disease. We're in chapter 5, verse 21. And our section today revolves around two specific events that are somewhat intertwined, if you will. The first involves the death and resurrection of the only daughter of a synagogue official named Jairus. The second involves the healing of a woman who had been suffering for over 12 years with a medical condition. Both of these are going to be used to demonstrate not just Jesus' power and authority over death and disease, but also to show the remarkable faith of those two individuals that are involved. And that faith is going to stand in stark contrast to what we've seen already. And I believe part of the reason that John does this and why he puts these two individuals last is because when one recognizes that Jesus is the Son of God, it demands the reaction of faith. Something is expected. And we also see that in the way that John arranges his gospel. We, we see that he's marching toward chapter 8, showing the disciples not quite getting it, not quite getting it, not quite getting it, until all of a sudden they get it in chapter 8. Because, and that's where Jesus is revealed as the Messiah. And it demands a response of faith. And so here, John, or I'm sorry, Mark kind of arranges this in a way too, where I believe that he shows these three episodes. And it's not until we get to the third one, with these two individuals, where we see a proper response of faith. And he's trying, to, he's trying to, in some respects, subtly tell us that that's what's required when we recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. It requires a response of faith. So let's look at the first one of these little episodes here where Jesus raises the synagogue official's daughter. We're going to start in verse 21, chapter 5. It says, When Jesus had crossed over again into the boat to the other side... A large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came, and on seeing him, he fell at his feet. 
And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went with him, or went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Jump down to verse 35. And when he was still speaking, they came to the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any more? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John and the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them out, He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talithakum, which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was twelve years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. Let's go ahead and break this down here. So after delivering the demon-possessed man, Jesus and disciples travel across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they are met by a rather interesting fellow. This guy, Jairus, was a synagogue official. And I think the thing we have to understand about that is remember the official leaders of Israel, the synagogue leaders, the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, were diametrically opposed to Jesus. In fact, we're told a little bit earlier before this that they were now seeking to destroy Jesus. They were enemies of him. So imagine for a moment that, that you're the synagogue official. All of your buddies, all of your co-workers, those that you are surrounded by, those you consider your companions and your compatriots, all of them are opposed to this man named Jesus. But all of a sudden, your daughter falls ill, and as a, according to this text, verse 23, she is at the very point of death. Can you imagine how desperate he must have been? But think about how difficult that must have been for him to go to Jesus. Imagine what his friends might have said. Imagine what his co-workers might have said. All the other synagogue officials. You know, it's, it's interesting. I've been watching all of the stuff now with the preparation for the 2020 elections. And I think about, all, what, there's now 20 Democrats, I think, that are, have announced their intentions to run. And we all know um, the young lady, um, AOC, as they affectionately refer to her, um, the other day she made comments about taking names and providing names of Democrats that vote along the lines with the Republicans and those names will be provided. There's this, um, not just animosity, but there's this, you better stay in line with us. Because if you don't stay in line with us, you'll pay the consequences. I can imagine that the synagogue official probably faced that himself. Because all those around him hated Jesus, sought to destroy him. And so in some respects, he puts his reputation on the line here to do what he did. Much like Nicodemus, when Nicodemus, the Pharisee, came to Jesus. He did so at night. It doesn't appear that's the case with this synagogue official. He seems to do it in the daytime here. So it's pretty remarkable that he would do exactly what he did. Jesus responds as he's walking along the road there when the crowd comes. What does the crowd say to Jairus. Remember, he's on his way to see his daughter, bringing Jesus along. 
And these people come along and they say to him, ah, it's too late. He says, she's already died. Notice Jesus' comment to him. Jump down, I think it's verse um, yeah, 35. While he was still speaking, there was an intervening miracle that takes place between this. We've jumped over it. We're going to cover that in a little bit here. But Jesus was speaking. They came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? You would think at this moment it would be time for the synagogue official to pack it in and go home. It's already too late, correct? But Jesus overheard what they were saying, verse 36. So now he speaks directly to the synagogue official and he says, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Now what's really striking about that is a better translation of that would be keep believing. In other words, continue to believe what you believed when you came to me. In other words, this is a statement by Jesus that it takes no more faith to believe that Jesus Christ can raise the dead than it takes to believe that he can heal the sick. Isn't that really the truth here? It doesn't take any more faith to believe that Jesus Christ can raise the dead than it does to believe that he can heal the sick. That's what he's telling the synagogue official. Your friends have come and said that it's too late, but it's not too late. All you need to do is to continue to believe. In other words, it was a recognition of the synagogue's official's faith that Jesus could do something about his daughter's sickness. And so he encourages this man to continue to believe. So what happens? They arrive at the house. People are weeping and wailing, it says. That's basically what they did for funerals. They would spend, I think it's up to five days, literally weeping and wailing and yelling and screaming out loud. And so that was already taking place. They started the funeral procession, if you will, before the guy even shows up. So when Jesus arrives, verse 39, he says, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And you notice what they do in verse 40 there. It says that they start to laugh at him. This concept of sleep here is rather interesting. Um, Jesus used it before, if you remember. To say that somebody was asleep when they were clearly dead was Jesus' way of saying they're not going to stay dead. Look at uh, John chapter 11 with me. There's almost a comical exchange between Jesus and his disciples over a very similar issue. John chapter 11, starting in verse 11. It's the death of Lazarus. You can understand why the disciples must have thought Jesus was a little bit crazy, proclaiming that Lazarus was asleep because they let him bake in the tomb for a couple of days. Clearly he was dead. But Jesus says, verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. That was a bit of a rebuke. It wasn't that they accepted, oh, I'm sorry, Jesus, if he's only asleep, then we don't have to go. No, they were basically saying, come on, Jesus. <laughs> if he were asleep, he would wake up. But he's dead. It's not going to happen, Jesus. So I love Jesus' response here. In verse 13, it says, Now Jesus had spoken of his death, so clearly he's dead. But they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Okay, But look at this. 
So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I can almost hear the tone in Jesus' voice. Guys, come on, he's dead. That's what I meant. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So when Jesus said, oh, he's asleep, the disciples thought he was mistaken. Oh, Jesus thinks he's only literally asleep. That's not the case. He's dead. Jesus has to remind him, no, guys, I know he's dead. He's not going to stay dead. And that's the point here with these these people that are at the funeral in the case of Jairus' daughter. Jesus says, she's only asleep. Again, not meaning literally that she's asleep, but rather she's not going to stay dead. So Jesus basically kicks all the mourners out. I think that's key here. He basically tells them, leave. Jesus takes only a handful of people. Peter, it says, James, John, and then the brother of John, or the brother of James there, John, and then um, the parents, along with Jairus. Or Jairus is one of the parents. So he takes a very small group of individuals into the room with him. Why do you suppose that might be? Jesus has a tendency here. Remember how he spoke in parables and why he spoke in parables? Those that were only interested in what Jesus could do for them, only those who were interested in seeing the circus, only those who really weren't ready, willing, or able to accept what Jesus Christ was saying and doing were taught in parables. There was no way Jesus was going to allow those individuals who were now mocking him, laughing at him, to see what he's about ready to do. Now we may think of that as a little harsh, but it's a form of judgment in many respects. Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, as we look through what God has done with individuals who continue to reject him, it says that he basically hands them over. And he hands them over. And he hands them over. And so you've find here that Jesus only allows the faithful, if you will, to come with him into the room. Only those that ultimately were willing to believe and accept. Those who had ridiculed him, however, were not going to get the privilege of seeing his power and authority over death. So it's probably why Jesus instructed them all to leave. And so what happens? Jesus goes in. Taking the child by the hand, verse 41, he says to her, Talithakum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. But he tells them in verse 43 then, not to tell anyone. Again, it's only for the privileged few. Sometimes we struggle with that because we think, well, why did Jesus hide some of that? Well, we've already kind of discussed that. You know, we've learned earlier in another passage that um, we are supposed to listen intently and that what we put into discovering Christ is what we receive back as well. And so these people here refused to believe. And so Jesus left them out of the miracle. But he allowed those to come in that were willing. And like I said, we've already seen with the synagogue's official the amount of faith that it must have taken him to be there. And when Jesus... Here's those trying to encourage him, give up. Jesus can't do anything. Jesus says, continue to believe, and obviously he does, because he follows Jesus into the room and watches his daughter be raised, and it says that they were astonished. So we find this first event here, where clearly, to be able to raise somebody from the dead is not something man can do. 
As good as doctors are, we've not been able to conquer death yet. Just celebrated, I won't say sessions I celebrated, but the anniversary of my dad's death a few years ago. Um, there was nothing they could do. You know, as he's laying there in the hospital and they're talking about maybe amputating his leg or trying to do heart surgery, knowing that he probably wouldn't survive the surgery, there was nothing they could do because man cannot raise someone from the dead. But Jesus could, so it's the demonstration that he is the Son of God. Let's look at the second event. Starts up in verse 25, so go back a little bit. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of all your affliction. So we have this other episode now. This woman comes to Jesus. It says that the crowds were pressing in on him. It reminds me of um, when we went down to Disney the last time. Um, we try to go at probably the slowest week of the year. And it's partly because of the crowds and stuff, you know. Well, we had, Kimberly had gotten sick, and so we missed the day at Disney, so we stuck around for an extra day, and we were there on Saturday. There was a distinct difference between Saturday and the rest of the week, because as we were walking around, it was like being chest to chest. And my brother has described that being down there um, during spring break. Probably one of the worst times. Well, that's kind of the picture you get here is that Jesus is in this crowd where as he's trying to walk, there are people pressing up against him, and it's hard to walk. I was watching the news the other day when um, the individual who had made up the story about being attacked by the, the white men wearing, you know, you know, doing the, you know, this is MAGA country thing or whatever that happened in Chicago, the black actor. And when he came out of the courtroom the other day after he had been arrested, um, as he's walking to the, to the car... Man, he could barely move because there were guys, even his bodyguards, everybody else in the crowds and the cameramen. And it's just literally, he would take a little step, you know, and he could barely kind of move because so many people around. That's the picture you get here of Christ trying to walk through the crowds. They were pressing in on him. And all of a sudden, this woman appears in the crowd and she pushes her way up to Jesus, fighting this crowd because she's in dire straits. Look at her condition. It says that she had been bleeding for 12 years. It doesn't state the nature of the bleeding. We can make all kinds of speculation, but the reality of it is she's bleeding. And she's been bleeding for 12 years. It says that she's visited doctor after doctor with absolutely no relief. In fact, it says that she had endured much or suffered much at their hands. Luke, if you go to that gospel, says that she could not be healed by anybody. They could not do anything for her. It even says here in verse 26 that she had spent everything that she had, and all she got for it was that things got worse. 
This woman is at the end of her rope. There's no hope for her. She's exhausted her savings. She's exhausted her resources when it came to seeing doctors. If anything, all they had done was made her worse. Can you imagine her desperation? Can you imagine the faith that it must have taken to be able to go to one individual who's not a doctor, somebody she had obviously heard about? As you look at her faith, she likely had heard about others, so as she presses towards the crowd, she has one goal in mind. Not to talk to Jesus, simply to touch his cloak. That's it. Verse 28, it says, If I just touch his garments, I will get well. That's it. There's a couple other instances. I think Mark chapter 6, verse 56, where people just touching Jesus were healed. She may have heard about that. But she wants to do this privately, it seems. She seems to do it in stealth mode, you notice. She's not all that thrilled when she gets caught. Says that she's fearful and she's trembling. But she makes her way up to Jesus, we're told. And as soon as she reaches out and touches it, verse 29, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Now I suppose at that point she probably would have just turned around and left. Walked away, because again it appears that she wants this to be stealth. But Jesus is having nothing of it, because verse 30 says, Immediately Jesus perceived in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth. Now that's a rather perplexing statement for us here. The first one is, um, this power proceeding out from Jesus. I'm not sure why Mark includes that, but clearly, probably the power of the Holy Spirit going out from Jesus to heal. I love that statement because I think it's Mark's sort of subtle way of referring to the power of God in a literal, physical sense. I think we're going to, as we witness the end time events and we see the power of God poured out among His enemies, that is going to be a spectacular, horrifying time. Because I don't know that we always really see the power of God. It's much more subtle. It's much quieter today. Can you imagine walking in the wilderness with Israel, watching what God had done with his enemies? There were some pretty spectacular um, things that God had done where you could see the power of God literally poured out in physical form. And that's something we don't often see. You know, when we see God's power, we sort of see it quietly behind the scenes. But here, there was something more physical about it in some respects. She felt it. Because she didn't just all of a sudden look around and go, oh, I stopped bleeding. It says that she knew She sensed it. Jesus himself sensed as well that this power had gone out of him. Again, likely the Holy Spirit. So Jesus knew something had happened. But the other thing that's perplexing to us is it says that he really didn't know who did it. Does that bother anybody? I mean, this is the Son of God. Shouldn't he have known? He says in verse 30, Who touched my garments? In fact, it's funny because his disciples, another comical instance here, Jesus, you see the crowd pressing in on you. Basically, everybody's touching you, Jesus. And all of a sudden now you say, who touched me? Jesus, the answer is everybody has touched you. But Jesus is interested in this one woman. It's funny because it appears that nobody else was healed. John doesn't mention that. Other people are obviously touching Jesus doesn't appear that anybody else was healed. Why this particular woman? 
what was unique? Well, at this point, the disciples aren't aware of it. They don't know about it. You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? Verse 32, And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. So all of a sudden, their eyes meet. Jesus sees her. I would suspect this, folks. Um, I'm of the opinion that what it meant for Jesus to um, become flesh meant that he did not give up his divine attributes, but rather voluntarily suspended the use of those things the mo- most of the time. Meaning that right now the reason Jesus didn't know who touched him was because he wasn't exercising omniscience at this particular point. In fact, we see a number of instances in the Scripture, in the, in the Gospels, where Jesus makes it known that what he knows is what's been revealed to him. What he does is what's been given to him. He does not act on his own behalf. And so he voluntarily gave up the use of certain attributes. And this is one of them. Where the reason he didn't know was because he was being completely dependent on the Holy Spirit for everything at this point. Rather than exercising his omniscience. So I don't think it should necessarily startle us. And so, the Holy Spirit, I think, here reveals to Jesus who it was. He sees the woman here. Their eyes probably lock. And what we find with her... Verse 33, that with fear and trembling came and fell down before him, and then she told the whole truth. One of the other Gospels indicates that she told everyone what had happened at this point now. So it becomes a public witness in some respects. But Jesus does something in verse 34 that indicates that it wasn't touching his robes that healed her. What does he say in verse 34? Daughter, your faith has made you go, or made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So what is it that healed this woman's illness? Why is it that the others touching Jesus weren't healed, but she was healed? It may be that they were more interested in Jesus' popularity, just wanting to be around him, whatever it is. We find that even today within the church, where... Many come to church simply because it makes them feel good or because they enjoy being a part of a community, but they're not really there necessarily for Christ. It may sound a little bit judgmental and harsh, but that's just the reality. Jesus himself says, many will say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I did not know you. And so this woman, it was her faith, he says, that made her well. I love the fact that he says, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. His blessing of peace is... Touching, considering that she had no peace. She had no hope. And so he does more than just simply heal her, but he sends her away in peace. But you notice something else that he does there? Do you notice how he addresses her? What does he call her? Man, that is a term of endearment and affection. Think about this for a second. This is the God of the universe. And he's speaking to her much like a parent would a child. I still get a kick out of the fact that every once in a while when I get a letter from my mentor or an email, he refers to me as his child. What a kick that is. It's just something endearing about it. So here it is, the God of the universe comforting this woman, referring to her as a daughter, sending her away in peace. And again, this is the God of the universe doing this. That's pretty remarkable. Can you imagine that if you were her? 
standing there just realizing that this must be the Son of God and look at the way that He treats me. I think sometimes we miss the tenderness of God. How He responds to us. How He's endeared towards us. It reminds me of Jesus walking along the beach talking to Peter after Peter had denied him. You know, I would suspect that if that were me walking on the beach with Peter, I'd probably be saying, dude, you blew it. Okay? Get it together here. i got a plan for you. i got a mission for you. Okay? Grow up. But instead, he's gentle and he's tender with him. Patient with him. Even when, and we'll touch on this a little bit later, even when Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples and they're all excited seeing him resurrected from the dead and they go and tell Thomas because he wasn't there. And Thomas is like, I'm not going to trust you guys. Man, I need to see it in his hands. I need to see it in his feet. That is the only way. And when he shows up, how does Jesus treat him? Compassionately. Doesn't rebuke him for it. He does say, well, hey, you believe because you see, but the others are going to believe because they'll do it without seeing. But he's tender to him. He's gentle with him. That's what we see. And so you get this contrast here. Here's the, the Son of God, as, as Mark is trying to present him to us trying to reveal him to us, but he does it in a way that's very tender, very gracious. Have you noticed how the faith of the synagogue official Jairus and the woman differ significantly from what we talked about last week? Jesus' own followers who got into the boat when there was the storm, they had been living with him, hanging out with him, being taught privately by him, had seen the miracles, um, had ultimately been involved with some of those miracles. But after Jesus calmed the wind and the storm, right in front of them, they responded, it says, with more fear than awe, and they didn't quite know what to make of him. Imagine that. Where would you be today if you're out on a boat and Jesus did that? We'd probably like, you know, we think it's cool, right? They weren't quite at that place yet. So they responded with, again, more fear. What kind of a man can do this? We find out a little bit later in the gospel here that they still were struggling with faith. They hadn't gotten to that point of faith yet. In fact, Jesus has to rebuke them twice, once after the feeding of the 5,000 5, and once after the feeding of the 4,000, where he literally says, haven't you got it yet? You might add to that, what are you, what's wrong with you guys? Are you thick-skulled? Where's your faith? You've seen all this, but you don't quite get it yet? So that's kind of what we see with them in the boat. We look at the crowds who saw Jesus miraculously heal the man with the demons. Remember what they did? And they booted him out of the city. They were so freaked out, they said, man, you need to leave. Now, we don't know if that was for economic reasons. I think it was more because they were afraid of what this guy could do, the power and the authority that they saw in him. But then we see us introduced to Jairus here, He's a synagogue official who um, ultimately is there because he's in desperate straits, but he's there probably against the wishes of his co-officials. He knows likely the rebuke that he'll face from them. He knows that they probably wouldn't be happy with him doing what he was doing. He would probably be ridiculed for it. Yet he falls at Jesus' feet with faith against all those odds. He had not been present like the disciples were. He had simply heard of Christ and what Christ had done. 
And he had to filter through the junk. Because you think about it, he not only heard about what Jesus was doing, but all of those around him likely were ridiculing, mocking. I imagine they had theological debates as to why Jesus was a heretic and wasn't who he claimed to be, because that's what us theologians like to do. Always debate. And yet in spite of that, this man has enough faith to seek Jesus out at great cost probably to himself. And even when people from the city come to him and say, it's too late. You might have gotten this guy Jesus to heal your daughter if you made it to him in time, but now it's too late. Come on back home. We've already started the funeral. And yet all Jesus has to do is tell him, well, hang on. You just keep believing. And he does. Isn't that quite a contrast from what we see with the disciples and the crowds and the other people around them? And ultimately, his daughter is raised from the dead because of his faith. So what we basically find, I think, in the Gospel of Mark here is Mark is now revealing to us after he's finished these three episodes... He's saved the faith of Jairus, or Jairus, to the end, specifically, I think, to set up this contrast. When you recognize that Christ is the Son, it demands faith as the proper response. We see the same thing with this woman. Let's go back and just touch base on her again. Twelve years of suffering... I would imagine she had probably prayed for a good part of those 12 years because she was Jewish. She probably knew what it meant to pray, to beg God for help. Doctor after doctor had just failed to bring her relief. She gets worse and worse. She spent every dime that she had. It's pretty remarkable that when we finally meet her that she has any hope at all. You know, what's interesting about this for me is I I remember this... um, I was having some back issues a few years ago where it was getting to the point where it was pretty debilitating. And I'd been to another number of specialists and they all said, not a whole lot we can do. The only solution to um, take care of it is something called a Schmorl's node, which is like a bulging disc that bulges up into the disc instead of out. And because it's in the thoracic area, um, all the specialists told me was the only thing they could do would be to operate on it. But because of where it was at, they didn't do that normally because they have to go in through the chest, deflate the lungs, move the heart out of the way, and then the success rate of something like that isn't all that great. And I remember um, struggling a lot with that because the pain was pretty intense. I could get no relief. I could lay down, it didn't help. Sitting didn't help. Walking didn't help. I had done, started some back injections. That That's no fun, but that didn't help much either. And I just remember getting to the point where I was worried about taking care of my family and being able to continue working. And I remember stopping at a gas station to fill up the car with gas and calling Amy on the phone and finally saying, I can't do this anymore. I can't take it. I'm at the end of my rope. And just bawling there, I'm thinking these people probably think I'm nuts here. I'm crying out, filling up with gas. But I'll be real frank, I was was desperate. I was like, what am I going to do? I can't do this anymore. Physically... The pain was, was intense. I could barely walk. I could not function. I'm worried about my family. All of that as a believer. Imagine this woman who didn't know Christ. As hard as it is for us when we struggle, imagine what it must have been for her, and yet in spite of that, to have this hope or this faith that Christ could do what he had done for other people. Imagine what that must have taken 
And so, I, again, I think that Mark leaves her to the end for us here. Because as Jesus demonstrates that he's the Son of God, her response is one of faith. Because that's what faith demands. With the exception of the demon-possessed man that we saw earlier, he actually responds with faith as well. But most of the people around him, most of the people that had seen the miracles of Jesus performed still didn't have faith. By far the majority of the people that Jesus Christ witnessed to rejected him. Even seeing the things that they saw. The demon-possessed man only believed after he was healed. Jairus believed before his daughter was healed. And the woman believed before she was healed. Isn't that kind of interesting? Their faith came before Christ did anything for them. Turn to John chapter 20. We'll wrap it up with this. John chapter 20. Jump down to verse 24. I mentioned this a few minutes ago. We call him Doubting Thomas. But Thomas, one of the twelve, remember this is the guy who saw everything. He was with Jesus. He participated with the miracles. We're going to look at uh, the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000, um, or the 5,000 and 4,000 a little bit later. Jesus deliberately involves them. They participate in the miracle. They watch this stuff be multiplied in front of them. So um, Thomas had seen these things. He had been on the boats with Jesus as he calmed the storm. He had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and seen the things that he had done. And yet, they come to him and they say, Jesus has risen basically just exactly as he had promised. Verse 25, So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. There's no faith there, folks. That's being pretty bold. The rest of you guys, the rest of you people can believe, but I, I won't. You may, have think, you may think you saw Jesus. I'm not going to trust your witness until I can see it for myself. And it's not enough that he see Jesus. He needs to touch him. Put his fingers in the holes. So he wouldn't even believe if Jesus walked in in front of him and said, Thomas, have a seat. We need to talk. He's like, I don't have to physically touch this guy to make sure that it's really who you say it is. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. In other words, he walked through the wall. He specifically looks over at Thomas. I'll give a paraphrase. Thomas, come here. Get over here. Remember what you said to your disciples, your friends? All right, now's your chance. Give me your hand takes his hand with his finger. He says, see my hands? Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving. In other words, stop your unbelief. So do not be unbelieving, but believe. At that moment, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, and here it is, my God. Recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. But then Jesus says to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Is that why? Is it simply because you've seen this? He doesn't rebuke him for that. 
because at least he believes. But he says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Think about that for us for a moment here. In some respects, that's a comment about us. Isn't it? Blessed are those who did not see. We did not see. I was not there when Christ did his miracles. I was not there when they nailed him to a cross or he rose from the dead. I was not in the room when Jesus walked through the wall and allowed Thomas to touch him. You and I didn't see. But we believed. That's the heart and soul of faith. Is it not? I could not have believed had I not been convinced that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I had been crying out to God for months for help. I didn't see. I had to base my faith on what I had heard. Somehow the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and allowed me to see spiritually that Jesus Christ was exactly who He claimed to be. And it's because when we come to that point, there's only one choice, to believe or not to believe. And so as we look at what John has been attempting to do in his gospel here, he's trying to reveal to his readers that Jesus Christ was the Old Testament Messiah, that he was exactly who was prophesied, but he's also trying to demonstrate that this Messiah also must be the Son of God. And in doing so, as in, re- in revealing him as the Son of God, there's a response that's expected. There will be some who will see and not believe, And then there are those like us who will not see, but yet will believe anyway. And it says that those who are like that ultimately will be blessed. And so I think when it comes to us, in some respects, this is hindsight for us, is it not? But it also helps us to understand that um, part of our responsibility, I think, in our witness is to help people to see that Christ is the Son of God. You know, it's interesting what's happening in evangelical circles today with the downplaying of certain aspects of our theology and our convictions that we've held. Um, There are churches today that will preach following Christ as nothing but a good prophet or a good man and really downplay his deity. But that's at the heart and soul of it. It doesn't make any sense for us to follow Christ if he's not the Son of God. So, From our perspective, I think, um, we need to simply remember that the the one that we have chosen to follow, the one that we have chosen to believe, isn't just a good man, isn't just Jesus, but Jesus, the Son of God.